This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Teal Talk Radio Season 4, Episode 36. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 36 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Cunyhen and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Cunyhen. Good morning. Hello. Today, we're speaking with Armand Doucette, who is a contributing author of the book, Teaching in the Fourth Industrial Revolution, Standing at the Precipice, a passionate global teacher prize top 50 nominee in 2017 and award-winning educator, leader, and business professional, Erman has a unique combination of entrepreneurial, teaching, and motivational speaking experience. He's been recognized with numerous awards in his home of Canada and is the creator of LifeLessonLearning.com, focusing on classroom redesign through culture, design, and passion projects. So welcome to the podcast, Armand. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we're so glad that you took some time, uh, actually, during your teaching day. Our audience may hear some of the class uh, in the background doing some of their work uh, while Armand has this conversation with us. So let's start off with teaching in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And we're fans of the World Economic Forum, so we've heard about the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So tell our listeners about the structure and the big ideas in teaching in the fourth industrial revolution. Why will practitioners find a book like this on teaching in the fourth industrial revolution so interesting and valuable? Uh, that's a good question. The, the World Economic Forum has been putting out uh, different articles and different research for the last couple of years, but in, particularly, in particular, Klaus Schwab's came up with the fourth industrial revolution, the book, and uh, another one that came out was the second age of machine or the machine age uh, by two guys from MIT. And I, I read through them and I thought, you know what, this is some really interesting stuff. But in particular, it's that as teachers, we don't really have the time to, during the year, really look at everything that's going on unless you're teaching world issues or a, uh, a current events uh, type class. So a lot of this uh, research and a lot of this information is not really out there uh, unless you're you're going to dig in for it. So there's there's been some you know interviews. There's been some uh, uh, different news feeds where they'll showcase the robot flipping the burgers for a shift. Uh, but you won't really talk about how far the automation's gone, how far the AI's gone. Uh, what about drone technology, uh, nanotechnology? So for teachers, it's key for us to sort of have an idea of what's going on out there. 
And then at the same time, how does that influence our classroom? So that sort of was the, the birth of the book. Uh, and then from there, I reached out to uh, some of the teachers that were also nominated for Global Teacher Prize, but that have done been doing some amazing things in their own uh, countries and that have been uh, nominated for innovation awards or nominated for uh, government industry awards or, or government so that uh, they understand what's going on as well. So it's a it's a co-authored book. There are numerous authors. You're one of them. You've got a couple of different chapters, and uh, really, it's from that it's from the practitioner perspective, um, through the lens of the teacher, and looking at this idea of all of the components uh, that ma- make up this idea of the fourth revolution. So let's shift a little bit and tell us what excites you about this topic, and what do you find most troubling <laughs> for education in um, this idea of the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, I find extremely exciting, uh, extreme, extremely daunting as well. Uh, it, it's very much on the, uh, like it says on the t- on the title, standing at the precipice. I really do think we are at a precipice, and we're either going to fly or drop. Uh, and because of his, I'm also a modern history teacher, we've seen these patterns happen in the past when you have mass disruption, and then what does what happens to society in these situations? So. The fourth industrial revolution, what I find interesting is that we're at the cusp of being able to really revolutionize how society works, how society plays, how society uh, uh, educates itself, uh, and and what are the possibilities and what are the needs of society to do. Uh, But with that comes also the legislation uh, that needs to come into place to support everyone. Uh, With that comes the understanding of needing to really understand how education works, uh, and what are the pitfalls and what are the possibilities of us being able to grow uh, exponentially uh, a lot quicker. Um, so th- there's a lot of things that I see as being exciting, such as artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. but at the same or virtual reality for that matter, but at the same time seeing the ethics behind it and how they could be used for bad. Uh, and traditionally throughout the last you know 2,000 years, Oftentimes, innovation's not necessarily been used for good. So, and we're seeing some of that in the news at the moment with Cambridge Analytica and the way they've used Facebook and and the way they use data. So, uh, it, these are some of the issues that, as educators, we really need to worry about for for our students. So, the idea of ethics and ethical decision making. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It also seems too on the on the policy side, um, some governments seem to be embracing things like artificial intelligence and these technologies of the fourth industrial revolution. And some of them, I think, like our own country of the United States, with our current administration, just seems to want to keep the government out of those things. And it is it is a bit scary. Like what what kinds of policies are are, are don't we have in place that that are going to need to be there so that people do use these things for good and, and for um, and with with ethics uh, I think you touch on it Randy it, because we can doesn't necessarily mean we should mm-hmm. and, and oftentimes that question isn't asked and it truly needs to be asked in these situations uh, it's the same for the classroom uh, if you're looking at b- because we can bring it in does it necessarily impact the classroom or is it a way for an outside company to make money and it, we, we truly need to look at that and educators need to be empowered and engaged to be able to understand what's coming in. What are the repercussions of that? Uh, ethically, how are we going about it? Is it the right way or is it something that ethically might have some question marks at the end of the day? So 
anything that can uh, collect data from a student from K to 12 till they get to university, there's a problem with that. Uh, specifically since it's not even, they're, they're not even the ones that are going to sign off the request sheet. It's going to be the parent. Uh, so there, there's a lot of issues in those situations that we need to address, but we also need to approach it from a holistic point of view and the silos need to be eliminated so that we, we each have a seat at the table. And teachers, traditionally, teachers that are still in the classroom don't necessarily have that seat at the table. We do have representation in many other ways, but what's going on in education policy discussions and what's going on in union discussions and so on don't necessarily represent what's actually happening in the classroom at the time. And, and, and that's something that needs to be addressed. So I wonder too about this idea of ethics and, you know, those learners that are in your classroom there right now, they're going to be, some of them hopefully be, be creating some of this policy and, and how do we help our current learners in the system from primary all the way up to, you know, just about ready to graduate. How do we help them to understand the ethical dilemmas behind, you know, approaching and using some of these technologies? Because that's definitely a skill that they're going to need. Mm -hmm. um, if not now, when they're in the classroom, certainly when they leave and they become part of, you know, adult life. I think that's embedded, and, and my two chapters actually really touch on that, uh, the teacher profile, uh, or uh, teach me, the, uh, the, the student profile, and uh, personalization. So both of them, I think, really address the student and, and how we address the student learning throughout K-12, to and I would even argue university and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, part of it is a holistic approach. So we're getting a lot of arguments that, you know, competencies, 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 need to be addressed in the classroom, which is totally right. There's no question there. We need to do it with intent and rigor. I don't agree that it should be assessed with a number on a report card. Uh, there's no way somebody should have a 98 in uh, communication skills or a 93 in collaboration. That makes absolutely no sense because all of these are fluid. And depending on what type of content you're talking about, it can change. Uh, so if I take physics, for example, my collaboration skills would be about a 12. Uh, but if I take modern history, it might be a 99. Mm -hmm. and, but the truth of it is I might be around a 65 or a 66 if we put a number on it, right? So I think assessing it to then put money or data behind it for competencies, I think we're going in the wrong way. So I think there's an ethical question there. And will standardized testing play a big role in influencing how we're going to go about that? So if I look at the U.S. standardized testing, so what is it, $5 billion industry or close to it? That that's going to influence how we're going to approach it. And whatever influences the U.S. influences the rest of the world in many ways. Mm -hmm. So uh, th that, I think, is an ethical question that we need to ask. In terms of teaching it holistically, there's ways to go about it that we need knowledge, content, rigor. Because it's not true that you can teach competencies or skills without having a, a core knowledge uh, of some content beforehand. And if you look at H Hattie's work in terms of uh, uh, directed instruction, I think it's 1.3 or 1.4 on the curve. And it really does have an influence before you do the inquiry-based learning. So it's not a binary conversation, and it has been in the last 10 years. And it really has been, you know, pitchforks on one side, pitchfork on the other. When the reality of it is in the classroom, and we know as teachers that it's a mixed baggage. Like, you really need to approach your pedagogy in multiple ways to address what the students need while at the same time addressing the competencies while at the same time addressing the skills and part of the skills is those ethical questions so 
asking those hard questions, making them think about it, and then talk to them about the scaffolding of critical thinking and problem solving. What can they leave aside? What can they bring? What do they need to address? And, and those are the types of questions that we need to sort of have a better understanding of how to do it in the classroom. I think we do knowledge content very well. Uh, I think we need a bit more work on how to holistically uh, present the scaffolding for competencies. So that's a good segue into give us a glimpse into what's going on in your classroom now. What is what is a typical Armand classroom look like in terms of uh, preparing kids for this fourth industrial revolution? Uh, it's I call it organized chaos. <laughs> So within my classroom, uh, we do some knowledge content at the start. Uh, oftentimes we call it concept mapping. So the students will get uh, some notes that I've already created, uh, might get some videos to look at, uh, might get some flip charts or picto charts or uh, different, different media. And then from there, what they're going to do is they do an initial uh, read through, an initial watch, a bit like a flip classroom. But we do that within the classroom. And then they create their own concept map of their understanding. Then from there, we'll move into uh, different activities depending on what I see they need based on their concept map. So it might be a collaboration exercise. It might be a jigsaw. It might be a carousel of some sort where there's different questions based on the units that we need to do. Uh, and then they keep growing their knowledge from that, but we work on the competencies as we're doing that. So if right now you're hearing the noise in the background, what they're doing is they're looking from 1871 to 1914, what are the causes that bring these countries to war? So they each have a country and they need to look at that. So right now we're looking at from that aspect in terms of content knowledge, but in terms of competencies, we're looking at collaboration. How do you communicate that message to the rest of the class? Uh, we're looking at critical thinking, problem solving. What can you leave? What can you keep? Uh, and we're also looking at computational thinking because without any actual uh, technology, because they're actually looking at how do we connect these different countries together? Who am I allied? Who is my alliance? And how do I, who are, who are not my alliance and why? So you're looking at some computational thinking as well in that situation. Now, that's uh, the projects that we've been doing for the last couple of days. But with that, they also have one project that's personalized to them and contextualized to them. So uh, to give you an example, it's called the Passion Project, and it's based on design thinking. And what they do is they want to prototype every six, seven weeks. They want to prototype an oral, uh, an oral part, a written part, and a creative part that's all based on that Passion Project. And by the end of the year, they've prototyped three times before I actually receive it. So to give you an example of the passion project, uh, Randy, what are you interested in apart from education? Uh, music and the arts. Okay, awesome. So I have a student right now that's looking at the influence of music on, or the influence of the Cold War on music based on Stalin's, uh, when Stalin was in power. So she's looking at the movements in different uh, music. She's looking at how the Cold War influenced that music. So that's her academic paper. Mm -hmm. So her academic paper is presented to me. Her oral presentation is a movie trailer, three minutes, and it's to get people hooked into reading their academic paper. So it's a different type of communication, also a different type of design, different presentation skills. And then the last part of hers is a creative part. So she's looking at creating something to enhance her presentation. At the moment, she's looking at creating a statue based off 3D printing of Stalin's head, and then Stalin's head sort of crushing the classical, or, or the uh, the musicians at that time. 
so it, that's a passion project because she's interested in that music, which would be the same for you. It would be something that you might be interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, for art, I've got one that's looking at the art movements of World War II and how they were influenced by war. So that to me is contextualizing education. That's true personalization. How do you contextualize it? They have autonomy, they have pace, they have choice. It's something that's going to be of interest to them, but it's also connected to what I need to do in history. So that's an issue in the global south where you might not have access to technology. You might not, you might be one teacher to 150 students. Uh, if I take Uganda, for example, I have a teacher friend of mine. Uh, she's alone with 150 students. So how do you contextualize that education? How do you personalize that when all the books they're getting from are from Western Hemisphere that have nothing to do with the actual country? So they don't see themselves represented in the books. They don't see themselves represented in the literacy or the math questions. And in that situation, contextualizing it might be looking at problems that they have within their community that they want to try to solve and build a literacy from there. So it, it, it really is... It, it's an interesting dynamics in my classroom and most of the time some of them will take a couple of months before they understand the skills behind it so you do need to get your organizational skills up there you do need to get your time management skills up there you need to be able to feel comfortable to lead a conversation and jump in and and at the start it's a struggle everybody struggles at the start but i'd rather have the safety net here than have the safety net in university where they're paying forty thousand dollars for two semesters and they fail, right? So it's better to catch them here. And they're learning those skills that of, of being learners as they go out to university and beyond that they're going to have to, in this fourth industrial revolution, constantly be able to learn and relearn and reinvent themselves too. So they're beginning to get those skills right there through those examples yeah. that you shared. Yeah, it's really about learning how to learn. Mm -hmm. So what advice do you have for school and district leaders as we work to transform our systems to support life and work in this fourth industrial revolution? You know, how do how do we create these opportunities our, ourselves as as um, central office leaders for our leaders and our principals and our teachers? Um, you know, what do we start uh, to think about? So uh, we've got a couple of I got a couple of ideas. Uh, the first thing is make sure that mission and visions align with what's happening in the classroom. Ed Catmull has a, from Pixar and Disney now, has a famous quote, if there's more truth in the hallways than in the conference room, then there are issues. And I believe that's the case in education. Uh, we have a lot more truths in the hallways than we, uh, than we do in the actual conference room where we're meeting. So we need to align it from the top all the way down, from superintendents to your mentors to your principals, then into the classroom. And a lot of the mission and vision, if, if I'm taking the U.S., for example, because I know a lot of your listeners are in the U.S., the mission and vision will talk about these competencies and are going to talk about we need to do this and that. But the reality is, at the end of the day, there's a standardized test that they need to be ready for that's nowhere in the mission and vision oftentimes, right? So that's an issue. And it really is because you're getting pulled in a couple of different directions. And then if your funding impacts that, I, I think you re need to really think about your socioeconomics, and you really need to think about how are you addressing these to bring out the best possible situation for your community and your students. Uh, and, and, and those don't always align as well, right? Uh, so th th I think that's one of the things. Number one is really to align the mission and vision. Two, you really need to empower teachers. And, and, and you need to give them the opportunity to fail sometimes 
uh, and maybe a, a daily practice, it didn't work well, but then to have the self-reflection and the coaching there so that they can take a look at it. Why did it fail? And then move on, you know, and, and pick up their pieces. Empowering teachers, I think, is absolutely key. Uh, and Dennis Shirley talks a lot about that from Boston College. He talks about the new imperatives of ed in education, and it's about a global network. It's about empowering teachers. It's about giving them the tools to be able to succeed. It's, it's really about making sure that you understand that they are professionals, right? They go to university. They go four years to university. Most oftentimes, they've done a master's degree. Uh, if you look at Finland, that's definitely the case. Canada's the same. Uh, the U.S., depending on which state, can change. But at the end of the day, they are professionals. And that's, that's key, right? It's like a doctor. It's like an engineer. It's like anything else. Are you going to go in and tell your doctor you have heart disease because you've researched it on Google? <laughs> and then tell him, hey, this is what I got. Please give me the medicine for it without him doing any testing? No, because it'd be absolutely crazy. And it's the same thing for teachers. T teachers don't get that respect oftentimes because we are dumped the world's problem at our doorstep without the support. And, and I take the U.S. in particular, you're really dumped the, the world's problems at your doorstep and, and without necessarily the full support of everything, the psychologist, the social worker, the, uh, the EI or the, the welfare. Uh, and, and all those things have an impact on the success of the student. It's not just what happens in the classroom. So I think those are the two real key things is one, empower the teachers Two, make sure that mission and vision really align. And then the third thing is make sure that we are doing this together as a society, not solo. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that is key. Mm -hmm. So providing opportunities to, for teachers and leaders and, and our learners too, parents to work in collaboration with each other, to take some risks, you know, in the yeah. direction of our mission and, um, be willing to iterate as your your kids are iterating multiple times with their passion projects and, and their products. Yeah, and that's exactly it. And that's a growth mindset, right? The growth mindset is not about uh, giving them necessarily more time uh, because oftentimes it's interpretive as they can do it whenever. But the truth is the growth mindset is being able to get some really good feedback and then move on and try to improve on it, which is what we're talking about learn to learn, right? So, you know, a, a really good athlete and, and a really good musician get feedback all the time and know how to interpret that feedback when they become professionals. And if we want them to become lifelong learners, is basically professional learners, is to understand where the feedback is and, and what does it mean. And, and, and I think that's key in terms of the passion project, in terms of uh, reiterating oftentimes and getting multiple prototypes. And I think that's what growth mindset's all about. It's about continuing to improve to meet a certain level. Well, we've enjoyed our conversation today, getting a glimpse into your classroom and your thoughts and your ideas and, and your new book, Teaching in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So what's next for Armand and what are you working on and what would you like to share with our listeners? Uh, so what's next for me is uh, I'm really looking at my two uh, chapters in the book, the Teach Me, the Student Profile and Personalization. And I'm going to look at how do you incorporate that in the classroom? So more of a roadmap for teachers in terms of how do you holistically approach your planning and how do you approach the multiple uh, exercise or activities that you do in the classroom with the projects to meet the competencies, meet the skills and meet the curriculum content. And does it really have an impact overall? Will that improve their mark in the long run? And what I mean by mark is their learning. Uh, or will it, will it be to a detriment to what we're looking to do in terms of uh, what the outcomes would be? 
So the next project is really to look globally, look at different examples for these competencies, who's doing it properly, uh, what does that mean for industry, uh, and then can we actually do it in the classroom? So thinking about can we actually do it in the classroom? Like, like what are all the pieces that we have to put into place to be to be able to actually implement it in the classroom? Take those risks, um, fail, try again, and have the support along the way. So thank you for taking the time to extend your body of work to thinking about that as well and um, supporting our teachers and leaders. Thank you so much for joining us, Erman. To learn more about Erman's work, you can visit some of the links in the show notes, Teaching in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Um, you can also check out the Facebook page, Erman's blog, and uh, follow him at Squarespace. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. This episode's question, now that you have a better understanding of the fourth industrial revolution and education, what steps can you take to ensure your learners are prepared for success? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season four, episode 36. That's all for now. We'll be back soon with another conversation featuring another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Armand. Thank you. Thanks, Armand. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.